From WGCU News, this is Gulf Coast Life. I'm Mike Canary. Researchers at the Florida Museum of Natural History are looking for help from the public in tracking two species of bees that are native to Florida that you'll probably hear before you see. Southeastern plasterer bees are super fuzzy, fast-flying, and most active around dawn and dusk from August through October. That's when wildflowers are in full bloom. But you won't find them buzzing in active hives like honeybees because they'll most likely be flying solo. Very little is known about these bees' biology and activity, but a citizen science project is underway way to hopefully learn more. Today we're joined by two of the researchers looking for help. I spoke with them last Thursday. Let's hear that now. All right, Dr. Jarrett Daniels is curator of the McGuire Center for Lepidoptera and Biodiversity at the Florida Museum of Natural History at University of Florida. Jarrett, welcome to the show. Uh, glad to be here. And Dr. Chase Kimmel is a postdoctoral associate in the Daniels Lab at the McGuire Center for Lepidoptera and Biodiversity. Dr. Kimmel, welcome to the show. Thank you for the opportunity. Do you find bees fascinating like we do? Do you have stories about bee encounters you'd like to share or questions about bees you've seen around the yard or out in the wild? Engage with us and your fellow listeners about this conversation on WGCU social media. Find us on Facebook at WGCU Public Media and on Twitter we're at WGCU using the hashtag GCL. So for starters, uh, Jared, I want to start with you. Lepidoptera. I said that a couple times at the beginning. I had to look up how to say it. Explain what that is and tell us about the McGuire. Center. Sure. So Lepidoptera is the order of butterflies and moths, and the McGuire Center is really the largest global research center dealing with butterflies and moths. We have one of the largest global collections. We, um, we do work um, across the realm from genetics to conservation to taxonomy, and we're right at the Florida Museum of Natural History on the public side of the museum. So when visitors come, they can view the collections. They can have open views into the research labs. Uh, so it's a, it's a great place to, um, to work uh, and just a, you know, a wonderful area. Insect um, you know, knowledge is um, you know, really a, an area where we, we need a lot more information. Um, the Daniels Lab, is that, is that your lab? It, it is, yeah. And my, and my lab focuses really on insect conservation. And we, we deal primarily with Lepidopter, with, with butterflies that are declining or threatened or endangered. Uh, but increasingly, we've been branching out into other rare insects, including bees. So we're here today in part, but mostly, to talk about plasterer bees. There's two different species of these bees that you're kind of hoping you can get some data on from people out in the world. Can you talk about these two kinds of bees? Yeah, so these are fairly you know, sizable bees. They're a little larger than uh, the western honeybee. They're um, uh, kind of big and fuzzy. They have tawny kind of colored um, thorax and head. So they're, they're, you know, almost bumblebee-esque looking. And uh, they're a fall-flying native bee. They're solitary. They're not uh, aggressive. So they're, they're really, um, you know, nothing to worry about for the general public uh, to approach. But the knowledge we have of these two species in the southeast is really limited. And so we really want to engage the public at a time of year when it's, you know, hopefully great to be outside in Florida. A lot of wildflowers blooming, temperatures are cooling off, and these bees are active. And we really want to have the public help us understand where these bees occur and what flowers they're going to, anything about their behavior. So we're just asking them to, you know, snap pictures when they see them and upload them to iNaturalist. 
Real quick, they're solitary bees. Will you see them uh, in multiples out in the world, or they will li- literally typically be by themselves? They'll generally be by themselves, but that doesn't mean that you couldn't see you know, two or three or more in a given area, but they just don't form a communal nest like a honeybee. So they, they develop a solitary nest. It's a subterranean nest. And once the female has partitioned that nest, laid her eggs, uh, that's it. She doesn't provide any maternal care. And as a result, they're not defending a hive or a nest. So they're very docile, and it really takes a lot of energy to get you know, get them to sting you or, or be aggressive. So uh, generally, if you know you watch them from afar and take pictures, they're not going to be a danger to you at all. What are they doing for the rest of the year if you only tend to see if you only tend to see them in the fall? Well, that's their that's their sole flight period. So that's when the males and females come out to mate and they develop their nests. And then the rest of the time, they're developing underground as um, immatures. And then they're waiting to emerge the following fall. So they have a a singular generation that is just timed during the the fall of the year from about, you know, August through um, the greater end of October. Why is there so little information about this particular kind of bee? That's a great question because uh, that's something that um, Chase and I have been kind of uh, scratching our heads a little bit because these are our fairly sizable bees. They're, they're pretty charismatic looking, and they're at a time, uh, active at a time of year where people are, you know, out and about and, you know, looking at um, wildflowers and other wildlife. So we, we don't really know why uh, so little information is known about them, but like a lot of other insects, they often kind of can go under the radar, fly under the radar, no pun intended there. And uh, so this is just one of those groups of species that scientists just haven't studied a lot. And so we, you know, it's impossible for us to cover all the areas of the Southeast. So that's why we really need the help of the general public to, um, you know, kind of fill in some of these gaps of knowledge. Uh, Chase, let's bring you in this conversation so you can answer some of these fun questions. They're loud buzzers, I understand. Explain how loud they are. Yeah. So they're compared to other bees. They just you can hear them from a distance. So sometimes whenever you're out walking around looking for them, many times you can hear them before you even see them. And while they, they are solitary, sometimes in the evenings the, the males seem to go over certain territories. And, and so the, these bees are uh, what we consider crepuscular. So the majority of their activity seems to be in the, the early morning hours and the later evening hours. We've seen some activity throughout the day, but it seems to be really busy during those times. But they are very loud and and they're they're very fast too so sometimes it can be difficult to to snap a quick picture of them but they they are quite uh loud you'll you'll typically if you're in in nature you're typically going to hear them uh, many times before you see them and you'll hear them coming from from quite a distance and zooming through uh, as you would say uh, maybe hear a hummingbird or something go by where would they typically be found? And I, by that I mean, A, like where in Florida, and then B, mm-hmm. you know, out in natural areas or around people where they live, kind of flesh all that out. Yeah, so, so typically from what we know, which again, we're always finding more information and we're always kind of scratching our heads and making us, it's making us question what we actually do know, but we find them in natural areas. So a lot of scrub habitats, sandhill habitats. We've even seen some in some pine plantation habitats, but natural habitats uh, with with fairly dry soils. And they are quite, uh, the, the, historically, they could be probably 
um, across Florida. The southern species that we have been working with, um, whenever it was first described uh, in 2004, I believe it was only known in Miami-Dade County and Highlands County, but the Miami-Dade County is already thought to be extirpated, meaning it's no longer thought to exist there. And so what we know in their ranges are quite, we we scratch our heads, but fortunately we've had some new occurrences of where some of them might be, and that's what we're trying to better understand, how these two species are related and what their true ranges are. Dr. Daniels, let's bring you back in now. Um, there are look-alike bees. Explain, like, like how many bees are there in Florida, and how many of them look like these plasterer bees? Uh, well, there are quite a few species of native bees in Florida, and they range, you know, broadly in their appearance and size. But because these are fairly sizable, they're probably going to resemble um, bumblebees to most people because they're, they're lar- fairly large and they're kind of fuzzy. Um, that typical kind of black and yellow or black and tawny um, color. Uh, they, they, like I said, they're about a little larger than a western honeybee, so that's another bee that could, you know, technically be confused with this bee as well as, say, a, um, a carpenter bee. So th- these are probably fairly identifiable for most people. They know what a bumblebee looks like and know what a carpenter bee looks like. Um, so you do have to, when you see these, you have to look a little closer, and that's why a photograph is really important because that is a great voucher enabling us to, you know, really look at that specimen in the wild and say it is potentially this bee or it's a different uh, look-alike bee. So they live underground, and I found it fascinating that the reason they're called plasterer bees is because they coat the tunnels of their nest with a cellophane-like coating. Can you, Dr. Daniels, keep talking about that? Well, actually, I might defer to Chase on this one. Oh, uh, sure. Go ahead. Yeah, no, no. So it's, it, they, it, interestingly, a nest of either of these species has never been documented before. We, we were able to find nests last year, but because it's so new, we want to try to better understand the behavior. So we put up cameras and we're trying to understand the nesting activity, but we're hoping this year to really uh, to find an active nest, to excavate it, to learn more about the, the the nesting biology, the depth. So what we know about this genus is from other species out in Arizona, out west, that are very similar, but we don't fully know with these given species what they may be like. But we have we have, we can have a pretty good educated guess based upon its closest relatives. Understood. So the, the jury's still out on whether this particular bee does the same thing as its relatives. Right. And, and it most likely does. It's just it's a different habitat. It's one of those things where we could, we could say that it, it, we're, we're pretty confident, but in all things science, it's, it's always hard to say, oh, it's, it's definitely this because as soon as we say that, we'll go out and we'll, we'll find something new. So um, we're anxious to actually answer that question this fall. Hmm. Um, do we know how and that, long? And that's one of the. Oh, sorry. That, that's one of the challenges with common names too. Is that they're they're broad, and so they don't. You know, it, it's hard. That's why you know scientists use scientific names because they're very specific. But common names are broadly applied often to a group of organisms, and in this case, this entire genus of this bee, which is broadly distributed across you know many areas of the New World. So it's. Um, generalities are challenging with insects because there's always exceptions. Understood. Um, how long, do we know how long these bees live? We really don't. We, we know 
certain activity periods. So like, for example, the bees as a whole might be active from August to late September, but that also can change based upon the range. Maybe the ones in South Florida typically will have a different uh, window in which they're active than the ones in Northern Florida or in North Carolina. But at a given site, they, they most likely will not live as long as the entire range. And so what we would what would be great is if you could, you know, mark an individual bee whenever it first emerges and, and kind of document it throughout its life. But that kind of research has never been done either on this, on the either of these species. Chase, we'll stick with you for this question. Um, do most bee species live as individuals and not in hives like we kind of generalize with, you know, honeybees? Yeah, that, that is correct. Most bees are actually solitary and even... On top of that, most bees are actually ground-nesting bees. So our typical, what most people might think of as a honeybee colony of, of a eusocial bee that lives together and gathers honey and pollen and takes care of the brood together, that is very, you know, common with honeybees. That's, that's what honeybees do. But most bees are not like that. Most bees live on their own. There's a, a sole female that goes out, and after she mates, she's going to collect pollen and nectar provisions for to keep with an egg that she deposits. Many times she'll make different chambers and have different eggs within her nest. But once she lays that egg and gives it pollen, it's kind of a hands-off approach. That, that egg develops into a larvae, feeds itself from the pollen that, that its mother gave it, and... Uh, pupates and then comes out and does it all over again the next year. So most bees do not fit that typical eusocial um, honeybee type behavior. By the way, that word eusocial, which for listeners is spelled E-U, then social, is a word that I didn't learn until this morning. And I'm a beekeeper, so that's my word of the day is oh, eusocial. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so so whenever we think... Um, I've been traveling a lot today, so I'm hoping my memory will serve me right. Jared can correct me, but there's three different characteristics of youth social. So you have overlapping generations. So as a beekeeper, you know that you have, you have adults, you have eggs, you have larvae altogether. You have cooperative brood care. So there are different functional roles for different individuals within a hive. And what am, what am I thinking, Jared? What's the third one? Um, a reproductive uh, division of labor. Yes. Mm -hmm. Oh, no, you're... Yeah, and so that, that, that's the that's the third one. It's a caste system. So um, there are, and there are other eusocial insects. Where a lot of times whenever we think about eusocial, we think of a superorganism like ants and, and and honeybees. But those three characteristics are by definition what is considered a eusocial insect. Would you say that it would be fair to say that? And and maybe this is part of sort of the eusocial concept is that honeybee colonies and ant colonies can kind of exhibit complex behavior that sort of exceeds the sum of any of its parts in terms of intelligence? Is that part of eusocialness? Yeah. So, so a lot of times the whole nest or hive is considered a super organism. So it in and of itself acts as, a, as an organism, but collectively together. And so they can do typically more complex, more what, what we think of as, as potentially higher order things than, than say individuals, but that's not to say they're, you know, more intelligent or, or, or better than any uh, other organism, but it's typically thought it's, it's a higher stage of, of development, but Jarrett might have a, a better viewpoint on that. No, I think that's a great explanation. Yeah. They, they just, they can function um, in, in a, a broader 
order of dealing with issues and challenges in the environment that, say, an individual organism might. But like Chase said, that doesn't mean that a honeybee is more intelligent, per se, than, say, another insect or another organism. It just means function of that collective colony is completing very complex tasks and behaviors hmm. for the greater good of that colony. Maybe I should give my beehive a name and think of it as an individual, not just parts. Um, if you're just tuning in, we're learning about southeastern plasterer bees, which, which researchers are seeking help from the public in tracking. The super fuzzy, fast flying, and obscure native bees are most active from August through October. I'm talking with Dr. Jarrett Daniels. He's curator of the McGuire Center for Lepidoptera and Biodiversity at the Florida Museum of Natural History. That's at University of Florida. And Dr. Chase Kimmel, he's a postdoctoral associate and the Daniels Lab at the McGuire Center for Lepidoptera and Biodiversity. Do you think you might have seen these bees? Researchers would love for you to share any photos with them, or you can post them to our social media and we'll pass them along. Share them with us on Facebook. We're at WGCU Public Media. And on Twitter, we're at WGCU using the hashtag GCL. So are these bees pollinators in the same way that honeybees are? Uh, uh, Jarrett, we'll go with you. Uh, yeah, they are. So bees are, um, you know, incredibly efficient and important uh, animal pollinators um, out in the broader world. Uh, as Chase mentioned, these are generally found in, in natural habitats, so they, um, they're going to be predominantly important for moving pollen between wild plants, not, not say agricultural or crop plants. Uh, but yeah, they, because they, they actively go to the blossoms to collect pollen for partitioning their nest, they're, they're very, very efficient and effective at moving pollen from one blossom to another. And I'm going to ask this question like I knew what this meant before today. Are they general or specific pollinators? Uh, so they're, they're, um, we don't know the full range of uh, hosts, of floral hosts that they go to and utilize. And that's actually one of the questions that we want to help fill in with this project is to, you know, to help document what flowers um, they're actually visiting. Uh, we, we know that these two species um, will visit multiple species of, of flowering plants, so they're more generalistic. We just don't know how broadly generalistic they are. So again, that's another gap of knowledge. Uh, they've been closely associated with a few species of, of wildflowers, but we assume that they do visit a broader range of, of plants and, and probably are more generalistic in their uh, affinity. Uh, Chase, so does that mean, just by implication of the, my question, does that mean that some bees specifically only pollinate one kind of fl flower or a subset of flowers? Correct. So there are some, and it, it's not as common, but there are bees that we consider specialists. So they might go to a specific species, a specific genus, or a specific family of plant. And um, in those situations, it, it gets a little more, um, I wouldn't say complex, but it, you have to understand the biology of the plant as well. And so uh, is the, the plant may be reliant on just that pollinator. At the same time, there might other be other pollinators that go to that plant. And so maybe the, the pollinator is really important for the plant or the plant is really important for the pollinator. And, and so trying to better understand and tease apart those relationships is something that we try to get at by actually capturing some of these bees to look at the pollen that's going to them as well as observing the other pollinators that go to some of these plants. And, and some of the plants that these bees go to are 
um, are, are listed as threatened or endangered. And so it's important not only from a bee perspective to better understand these bees, but to also um, understand the, the pollination aspects of this because um, they could be very important for some of the, the threatened and endangered plants that they go to. Are these bees considered endangered? Or I guess the question, the broader question I have is, is are insects considered endangered? Are they like covered by the Endangered Species Act? So um, these bees are not uh, listed uh, at the federal or state level. They are, um, uh, at least the Florida plasterer bee is a species of conservation concern just because there's little information about it. And it's presumably fairly limited in its range, although that's one of the goals of this project is to understand how limited it may be. And then more broadly, insects are covered under the U.S. Endangered Species Act and uh, many uh, state lists uh, as well. And in Florida, we have um, a a number of of butterflies, particularly four species of butterflies that are federally listed as endangered. And Florida is a very diverse state from a habitat perspective, it has a very rich flora and a rich fauna, and many of these insects and other organisms live in very specialized habitats. So those, those kind of specialists tend to be those uh, organisms which often are listed because they're already limited in range. And as Chase mentioned, if they have a, a, a narrow range of um, host specificity, if something happens to one member of that kind of group, then it can have a cascade effect on the other organisms. Hmm. So we've mentioned a couple times how people can take pictures and get them to you somehow. Can you, um, Jarrett, explain um, the iNaturalist page that you guys have and how that process would work? Yes. Yeah, so uh, most people probably are familiar with iNaturalist. It's a, it's a very um, a common uh, citizen science platform and basically um, if people are out and about and they, they see uh, what they think might be one of these bees, they can simply snap a picture with their um, mobile phone and upload that photo to the iNaturalist project site for for these bees, and uh, it'll you know allow us then to to visually see that image um, and uh, the, the the individual that uploaded that, and and there's also some geographic specificity associated with that image, so. Basically, just allows us to evaluate that photograph and say, you know, is it potentially one of these bees, or is it a a, a common lookalike bee? How long have you been uh, researching insects, Dr. Daniels? Uh, well, I, I started my career in in about uh, 1992, but I, I've been broadly interested in insects and I, since I was very little, and I, I think that's kind of a common theme for biologists to become interested when they're when they're very young. And I've been very lucky to have the opportunity to, uh, you know, pursue that as a career. And uh, I really love the field of conservation because insects are often overlooked compared to other, uh, other organisms. And there's so much need that they're so, um, they're so diverse on this planet. And for many of the species, there's so little information known about them. So projects like this, where we're sort of, um, you know, explorers trying to make discoveries about the biology, ecology, behavior of, of these insects, those are super exciting projects because pretty much everything we find out is somewhat new to science. And so it's, it's like a, you know, it's like a, 
a, a wonderful exploration, and it's uh, really what keeps me coming back to science as a as a career. And you've been able to see the arc from scientists doing it alone to scientists having people out in the world with cell phones in their pockets and cameras. I'm just trying to imagine naturalists throughout history, if they had access to that kind of data collection, it just must be a, a, a quantum leap forward. Oh, definitely, because, you know, as you know, you know, if you're one or two researchers or we, you know, have a small lab, if, if um, it would take us uh, years to fill in those types of um, data or to travel across the southeast to all these locations where an army of community scientists can go out and you know, that their contribution to the big data available to the scientific community is just, you know, accelerated our knowledge of biodiversity and the questions that we can ask. So it's, it's, it is leaps and bounds. It's like going from a horse-drawn carriage to, um, you know, a supersonic jet as far as the data that can be collected. Chase, we're kind of heading in for a landing here, but I wanted to give you a chance to highlight um, your favorite or the most interesting that you can think of, you know, non-traditional bee that somebody might not know about that you might find in Florida. Oh, my favorite bee. Uh, see, I'm, I'm a little biased because I really enjoy these bees that I work with. We, we also work with another rare bee called the blue calamintha bee. And that I really enjoy working with that bee because it, it is more of a specialist, occurs in a unique habitat, and has kind of a unique behavior in how it collects pollen on its head. Um, but I really, there's a lot of other bees, one, some in the genus Nomia, uh, that's N-O-M-I-A, and that is a really, really pretty bee. It almost has like a rainbow pattern on its abdomen. Um, but uh, it's hard to pick a specific favorite. To be perfectly honest, um, sometimes I like the way certain bees look or how they act. Um, these bees in this genus Capolacana, the, um, the plaster bees that we've been talking about, are really, really neat, but they have a completely different behavior than a lot of the other bees that we've studied. So they're, they're, you've got to get up early in the morning or later in the evening to try to see some of their activity. They do a lot of what's called nectar robbing. So they'll go to plants the night before they even open and steal nectar from them. Um, and so there's a lot of really unique behaviors that we find really fascinating because we just don't see them very often. And that's not necessarily saying that, that maybe they're not common. They're just not very well known. There's not too many people going out you know, right before sunrise, trying to figure out what these bees are actually doing. And so, um, but in terms of my favorites, I'm, I'm kind of biased towards the bees that I've worked with, these Capolacana bees, as well as the, the blue Calamintha bee. All right, uh, Dr. Daniels, last question. We've only got about 30 seconds, so make it quick. Um, you know, A, why should people care about bees, or extend that to what would the world look like without bees? Well, bees, as I mentioned, are the most effective and efficient pollinators. We know that over 80% of all flowering plants on this planet require or benefit from animal pollination, the bulk of that provided by insects. So without bees and other pollinators, um, you know, basically systems sort of collapse. The food on our table looks very different. Our economies look very, very different. So it affects everything across the human spectrum from the natural environment, the agricultural environment, um, how we deal with food security, you know, what we enjoy to eat every day. So uh, we rely on them for, you know, really our well-being on this planet. All right. Well, that is all the time we have. I want to thank my guests. Dr. Jarrett Daniels is curator of the McGuire Center for Lepidoptera and Biodiversity at the Florida Museum of Natural History. Uh, Jarrett, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. 
And Dr. Chase Kimmel is a postdoctoral associate in the Daniels Lab at the McGuire Center. Dr. Kimmel, thanks to you as well. Hey, we really appreciate it. If you missed any of today's show, you can always hear episodes in their entirety on our website, wgcu.org slash gcl, or wherever you get your podcasts. Our show today was produced by Tara Calligan and myself. Our director is Richard Chin Kui. For now, thanks for listening. I'm Mike Canary. This is NPR for Southwest Florida, 90.1 WGCU-FM, Fort Myers, Naples, and Punta Gorda, and 91.7 WMKO Marco Island, a member-supported service of Florida Gulf Coast University.